Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks, comrades. And I just, I'd acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that they've never ceded this land either by treaty or by commercial contract. All right, comrades. Um, if I was actually kind of using a, an equation, if you like, to show you do, uh, give you the guts of what I'm about to say, it would be students plus the left plus the Labor Party equals a successful anti-war movement. Um, and what I'm going to do now in the remarks that I'm going to make about the history of the moratorium and the lead-up to the moratorium, I hope will put some flesh and bones on that, um, on that equation and convince you of the uh, political correctness of what I've just said. Um, so the moratoriums, moratoriums of 1970 and 1971 were the culmination of six years of campaigning by the anti-war movement. They involved tens of thousands of people marching and assembling in capital cities and major towns around the country. The moratorium marches and rallies were held on a weekday, which was of crucial importance, on a working day. They were not just Sunday strolls that we get used to too often. In that way, they were very radical events. They were held under the slogan of stop work to stop the war. Here and there, on the walls of building sites and occasionally even in schools and TAFEs, there were actual collective walk-offs in favour of stopping the war. But it was more likely that the strikers were individuals moved by conscience who absented themselves from work as acts of individual conscience. People who did this, and they were mostly white-collar workers, generally escaped sanctions uh, from those acts. The escape from sanctions were the result of a now general ascendancy of anti-war sentiment in, the, in, in Australia at that stage by 1970. It hadn't been until May of 1969 that opinion polls registered a majority of Australians against the Vietnam War. And incre it increased as the months went by. This spreading opposition was due to a number of factors. It became clearer week by week by the 19 1969 that imperialism was not going to win in Vietnam and that the atrocities and war crimes were going to continue and, if anything, get worse. There was not a skerrick of a moral licence to continue the, what was called the dirty and losing war in Vietnam. It was clear too to the Australian establishment or ruling class by 1970 that the war was tearing the United States apart. The killings at Kent State University had happened earlier that year. Participation in the war was dangerous to the social and political stability of countries in, involved in the war. Even before the Whitlam Labor government was elected in December of 1972, the Tory coalition government had read the inevitable feat in writing on the wall in Vietnam and begun to withdraw Australian troops and wind down Australian involvement. All this was the culmination of anti-war campaigning that had begun six years before. It had begun at the Australian Student Labor Federation Conference held in Canberra in May of 1964. This was an annual affair or jamboree to which university ALP clubs and labour clubs sent delegates. It was a united front affair with the delegates' politics spanning everything from social democracy through to anarcho-communism. On the last day of the conference, there had, been the there had been the first demo against the war, held in downtown Canberra and demanding the withdrawal of the few hundred special forces and Australian army advisers committed so far to Vietnam. As part of this process, a dozen or so students, 
I have to confess, I wasn't arrested, were arrested for the sit-down uh, um, in the lunchtime traffic. Support for the Vietnamese Revolution, or the Viet Cong, as the communist-led revolutionaries were called in Vietnam, still didn't command a majority uh, among student radicals, but that was to come. At that stage, it was universal opposition in Labor and ALP clubs to the commitment to the war. In the 1960s, students, and I think this is important, were, had suddenly become important. Their numbers trebled during that decade. This was the beginning of the mass universities. This was a reflection of capitalism's new need for highly skilled workers. These students had plenty of free time. Universities were either free, sorry, or almost free, and ran on annual exams rather than continuing, continual assessment. And the universities were still sanctuaries for critical and dissident thought. The combination of critical thought, free time and increasing numbers suddenly gave university students a critical social and political mass. I should add that the war touched young people directly via conscription, which was introduced in 1965 when there was an escalation of the war and there was a need for more cannon fodder. In Australia, conscription was selective, not universal as in the United States. What this meant was that every six months, and this is literally what happened, there was a lottery with a certain number of marbles with dates printed on them, picked out of a barrel, and if your 20th birthday coincided with one of those marbles, you were in the army, conscripted, and likely to be sent to Vietnam. It quickly became known as the Lottery of Death. It added a whole new dimension to opposition to the war. In Sydney, and I suspect in most cities, the moratoriums were mostly students and young people. Certainly they were the base of the anti-war movement right from the beginning. I remember the first march downtown in May of 1970 for the first moratorium. There were five or 6,000 students from Sydney University, which was a huge part of the 30,000 people that eventually congregated at the town hall. The crucial figure in the anti-war movement in Sydney was a man called Bob Gould. He was, in his, he was, in his, uh, he was about to turn 30 in the mid-1960s. He was a university dropout and earned his living at various jobs, mostly working for Australia Post or at bookshops. He was an Irish Catholic, an old boy of St Pat's at Strathfield. He was the son of a World War I veteran who'd lost half an arm on the Western Front and was nicknamed in those pre-political correctness uh, days, Wingy Gould. Gould senior, senior had been a figure, a major figure, in the Labor Party in the 1930s. Bob was brought up in, the Labor, in Labor politics and in the 1950s gravitated first to the Communist Party and then to the Trotskyists. The Trotskyists were practising interism in the Labor Party at the time, but Bob and most of the other Trotskyists were fairly well known in Labor movement circles and certainly on campus as Trotskyists. Anyway, it was Bob who formed the Vietnam Action Committee in 1965, basically of students and young radicals and around the single demand of withdraw the troops now. The Communist Party and the official uh, um, peace movement at the time were still campaigning around vague demands of stop the bombing and peace talks and so on, the implication of which was that the United States had a role to play in the determination of the future of Vietnam. In comparison, withdraw the troops implicitly supported the right of Vietnamese to self-determination. It was Bob and the Vietnam Action Committee which called the first Sydney downtown demos against the war, usually on Friday nights after work, and held the first sit-downs and peak hour traffic that provoked the first arrests. It was Bob too, that brought more sharp, sharply to our attention what was happening in the United States. It was at Working Bees, at Bob and Mari Gould's place 
in Woolara, where we were busy stuffing envelopes uh, to send out. He had a, a, a mail list of about four or 5,000 uh, people that I first heard Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. Bob subscribed to all the radical newspapers and magazines in the United States and insisted on coinciding our demos with those in New York and San Francisco. It's true that already the civil rights and black power movements in the United States had woken us students up, uh, but the radicalisation of, of, of American students certainly inspired us here. Bob directed much of his propaganda at members and supporters of the Communist Party. Communist Party then was still something of a force in Australian society. It had three or four thousand members, which I suppose would be equivalent of about 10,000 a day. Many, very many of them, a good proportion, were activists. The party had probably 20 or 30 full-time paid party functionaries, a weekly newspaper, there were no internets or websites or whatever then, and they were a major force in the trade unions, which then covered about half the Australian workforce. To the party apparatchiks, 30 or 40 of them, you could add up to 100 union officials around the country. The strategy of appealing to communist rank and filers of outflanking the Communist Party to the left certainly resulted in the Communist Party hardening up its position on the war. It wasn't the only factor, but it was one of the key factors. And the party became the inescapable central organising force behind most of the moratoriums. The students and the left were crucial organising forces, base and spearhead of the anti-war movement which culminated in the moratoriums, as they were in the United States. But here there was one crucial difference that allowed the movement to spread into the working class, both the old and new, the blue and white collar. And the crucial difference was the Labor Party. The Labor Party was then not a fail-safe, 100% reliable administrator of capitalism. There were historic reasons for this, summed up in the leader of the Labor Party at that time. From 1958 to 1967, the federal leader was Arthur Augustus Call. He too was an Irish Catholic, a dissident, a dissident one of that. He traced his politics back as a young man to the anti-conscription struggles of World War I and has led the fight inside the Labor government in World War II against conscription. In addition, he was an Irishman by origin and by sentiment, and so he was an anti-imperialist. For these deeply historic reasons, he was both anti-conscription and against sending troops to Vietnam. He labelled the Australian participation in the war participation in a dirty and unwinnable war, direct quote, and right from the beginning situated labour against the war. This certainly made it easier for us radicals and communists and revolutionaries to campaign against the war. The labour underwriting was very visible during the moratoriums. For instance, the crowd at the first moratorium in Melbourne was more than 100,000 people, compared to 30,000 in Sydney. This disproportion can only be explained by the fact that the Victorian branch of the Labor Party was easily the most left-wing and anti-war in the country. Alone, of all the state ALP branches, it endorsed the moratoriums. Corwell himself was a, was a Victorian. The Victorian Labor MP most identified with the anti-war movement and leader of the party's left wing was Jim Cairns, as I said, a Victorian. If the moratorium had a leader and a figurehead, it was Jim Cairns. This Labor endorsement gave the movement a legitimacy it may not have had otherwise. While the Stans Labor took, took disadvantage at the beginning, it lost the 1966 election rather badly, standing on a platform of immediate withdrawal of the troops. 
But by 1969 and 1972, its anti-war and anti-conscription positions uh, were vote winners. While not ide idealising or overestimating or mythologising the anti-war movement and the moratoriums, what are the lessons? The first is that taking an intransigent political and moral position against that dirty and unwinnable imperialist war was unavoidable. It had to be done. It was a decent thing to do. Secondly, and this is not unusual, taking a, such a principled stand can coincide with social and cultural changes. In this case, the advent of a mass student population and a wave of cultural and political dissidents that gave unexpected force to the anti-war campaigns. Thirdly, the Labor movement and its party uh, was of crucial importance in underwriting and legitimising the movement. I think there are lessons here uh, for us today and in regards to AUKUS and the drive to war with China, but I'll leave that to Ian and to you and the discussion. So thank you. Okay, thanks very much all. Um, I wasn't so immediately involved in the organisational um, ins and outs of the, you know, of the campaign. Uh, the, the, first, the first few years, uh, although I made my first anti-war speech in 1966, uh, that was at high school. Um, and uh, so a lot of my organising was you know, much more you know, on the ground and, um, uh, you know, rather, and a bit of an observer in some respects of the, you know, of the campaign and the developments of the campaign, you know, rather than able to talk about the ins and outs of the you know, the committees. Um, but in that respect, I think one of the points that Hall's made, um, which was certainly important for me, is that, is that the, it's not that the anti-war movement didn't come, you know, fully, fully born. There was a whole period, you know, that took, you know, eight years, ten years of actually, uh, of, uh, you know, of organising, you know, from, you know, 64 when conscription was actually announced, the first strikes um, were in, you know, in 65, which is, I'll come back to the question of the, you know, of the unions uh, themselves, but in, you know, 66, um, we start to see, certainly in Queensland, and I'll be talking you know, about Queensland uh, mostly, uh, certainly Queensland is where you start, start to see the very first uh, you know, demonstrations and protests uh, by the um, youth campaign against conscription, by you know, SOS, um, the first uh, university student demonstration, uh, Humphrey McQueen, who was a Queenslander in those days, um, actually was one of the main organisers at the time, and uh, that was in March. You know, 19, you know, 19, 1966. So that was a, a process that was already you know had had begun. Um, and one of the one of the one of the points I think about the campaign, one of the radical radicalising features I think of the anti-war thing is I mean people were a minority, a very small minority at the beginning were horrified about Vietnam. The question of conscription obviously started to affect you know greater greater and greater numbers of people. I think probably was the the singular most important thing for actually pushing the war into uh, into mainstream politics and radicalising you know younger people who were immediately affected by it or were expecting to be affected by it as you know as as I was even at that um, even at even at that stage. Uh, but. Um, the, it wasn't in you know, you know, huge numbers. In fact, the first demonstration um, from uh, Queensland Uni, October 66, um, that the, there were 40 people, 40 people uh, attempted to march from the university into the city. There's a big, slightly bigger demonstration in the city, about 400 people in the city. But the 40 people who come off campus in October 66 were smashed up by the police. So don't, there's various figures about the numbers who were, you know, who were, who were arrested. Most of them, you know, were, you know, most of them were arrested. But by September 67, which was the next, uh, you know, 
big student protest. Um, actually, there were 4,000. Uh, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but let's say it's three to 4,000 people um, from, you know, from 66 to 60, 67. And that process was really driven by a whole lot of very, very intense uh, political discussion, political argument. Um, there were, and there's many, many stories about that, of actually the activities on the, you know, the campus itself of individual activists being you know, surrounded by you know, engineers and being pushed from one to another to try to intimidate them from handing out uh, leaflets, uh, people who would make uh, speeches, and some people here are familiar with making speeches in cafeterias or you know, lecture rooms and being pelted with food. Um, in the, when, they, when they first start that process, but uh, the, by weekly organising, by you know, coming back again and again, by carrying out the, uh, you know, the arguments, producing the leaflets, that process you know, started, uh, you know, started, started to change. Um, until you, like I said, you saw between you know, 66 and 67 in Queensland, you saw that, you know, dramatic, you know, that dramatic difference. Um, and I think that's one of the, uh, that is one of the elements, I think, which is important about the campaign, as I saw kind of mentioned, is that you have to start from that principal position, but that doesn't immediately give you some kind of, you know, some kind of mass audience. But if you know the, if you know the cause is right, um, and you've got the politics actually begin to make the, make, make the connections with people, well then, you know, things, uh, you know, things actually become, you know, become possible. I think the other thing is to situate it a little bit in the, in the wider context, um, certainly someone who was living outside Brisbane at the time, but the whole, the, the general conservative climate in which the anti-war movement, you know, erupted. I mean, there's some similarities, I think, between, you know, the arguments about the yellow peril um, at the time, and explicitly talked about in terms of the yellow peril and the domino um, theory of, you know, that one you know, country would fall to communism and be, you know, encouraging other countries to fall to communism and they're all, you know, coming down, you know, coming down to Australia. So it was a tremendously, you know, conservatised, you know, kind of climate. Um, and I, the, I think the other aspect uh, is that the way in which once you started to become radicalised kind of about the war, it tended to ramify into so many other facets of, of society, of what, well, of capitalism, um, but for the students, and I think this is true not just in Queensland but many other places. You know, for the um, the immediately what they come into come into conflict with was a very extremely conservative government uh, that uh, didn't allow protests, uh, that imposed laws in which to actually carry a placard. You had to have a permit for a placard, which cost um, ten shillings. Uh, at the time, uh, it was an, like an impossibility uh, for that to happen. But that the the extent to which the state apparatus actually, you know, sort of came down. Not to the question of the police and the arrests and things, but the issues about the right to protest and the nature of the state in which you were dealing and having having to take up the questions about the war was also something which started, you know, you know radicalised people because it wasn't just the war. People confronted with, you know, a state apparatus which was conscripting. You know, young young men, on, uh, you know, on the one hand, and, and the other was severely restricting the possibilities of any kind of uh, protest. And one of the game, one of the things which drove with a certain moralism about you know conscripting uh, you know uh, people who couldn't uh, tw twenty year olds who couldn't vote. In those days, you couldn't vote till you were you were twenty one. So it was right to die, but no you know right to uh, you know no no right to vote. So there was, and um, in other places as well, where that, you know, it's Melbourne, I know, you know, it's one place where, you know, the, again, the question of the Crimes Act and uh, local bylaws was used, you know, to try to prevent people distributing, you know, leaflets in the streets of Melbourne and people were arrested and went to jail fighting for the right to protest as much as they were, you know, part and parcel actually fighting, you know, against the, uh, you know, against the war. 
I, I think the other thing which uh, you know which ha happened is that is that there was a constant there was a constant argument inside. Uh, you know the camp, the, you know the campaign, and we—I mean—we all go through that experience of going through the beginnings of, uh, you know, beginnings of wisdom, uh, of you know, recognizing that the world is not the way that perhaps you, you know, been re read about or pushed on the news or in the papers or you know, or at school, and how that starts to open up other little aspects of how you know society, you know, society really works. But you, all that change of initially responding about whether the war was morally wrong, was this more war morally wrong? Was more war morally wrong? The questions of the nature, the nature of the war, uh, the nature of the you know the, the resistance that you were you going going to uh, that was going to carry out. You saw one of the other features of it: the people who were conscientious, conscientious objectors. Uh, who could conscientiously objected to the National Service Act, um, and there were very, very strict provisions uh, about doing that. But as as the war went on, more and more people recognised, you know, it wasn't just a matter of conscien conscientiously objecting, trying to use the act itself, but that there was a fundamental problem with the National Service Act. It had to go, and um, and people started to become you know, draft uh, draft resistors, and there were two organisations that became you know, explicitly to organise against against the draft to smash. The National Service Act and to take it, uh, to take it, uh, you know, much in much more, you know, dramatic direction. I think the other thing, um, uh, which is is also the things, it wasn't separated. The things that were radicalising wasn't separated from either what was happening in the working class or what was happening in wider, you know, in wider, you know, world, you know, world politics. As I said, the first responses uh, to the war actually came from uh, the Maritime, Maritime Union mostly in, in Melbourne and in Brisbane in 1965 when they first uh, sent the troops to uh, Vietnam. There was actually strikes in Melbourne and uh, you know, in Brisbane. The Wolfies Club in Brisbane was quite close to the US Embassy and the uh, Wolfies Club was where they had their monthly, uh, I think their monthly stop work meetings at that stage, but they were real stop work meetings at that stage and they would go from the stop work meetings down to the, you know, down to the US Embassy to carry out those, uh, you know, those protests. Um, so, and I think the, uh, the um, and then there was a, um, I think a, you know, what am I trying to say here? I mean, a development of those working class politics. So that while, you know, the, the first responses, I think, largely were driven by Communist Party leadership in those, you know, in those unions. But in terms of the wider working class, I think it, there was a degree of actual interaction between, you know, the student movement fighting, fighting around the war, arguing about the war, and, you know, starting to move you know, other sections of the working class, other sections of unions into much more explicit, you know, oppos you know, opposition. So I think one of the indications that I think I'm probably going to run out of time in terms of the detail, but in after 65, when the Wolfies walked off the, off the job, the ACTU actually wouldn't uh, endorse a strike action against the war. But by 1970, the ACTU's position, you know, had, uh, you know, had changed. And I think uh, similarly, uh, the way you know, that uh, you know, Hall's gone over in terms of the shift in the Labor Party, um, that, that was part of the, the question of the movement and the, and the movement quite consciously interacting you know, with the working class and uh, pushing around, the, you know, around, around Labor. Um, so the, uh, the issues about understanding the war, um, I think they were you know, also critical, kinds of critical things. There was a difference between anti-war and being anti-imperialist. Um, and as people became more, you know, more aware, and there was more arguments and more discussion, you know, on the, you know on the left about how to understand the war, what was imperialism at the time because of the Communist Party, in particular, but also because of the Orthodox Trotskyist position, there was so much, um, you know, um, 
sympathy, a political sympathy with, uh, with the, the NLF as a genuine, with the Viet Cong as some kind of genuine you know, socialist force. Uh, people thought Ho Chi Minh and North Vietnam, you know, leave aside China or Russia, were actually socialist countries and that there was some element of socialism was actually being involved in that, you know, in the transformation, in the, you know, in the struggle against the Americans and the Australians in, you know, in, you know, in Vietnam. And that was also, you know, something which, you know, required a lot of, a lot of discussion. And that's where I think the, what happens in the outside world is also, you know, important, because while that discussion is actually happening, what happens in 1968, we not only get the Tet Offensive, uh, which puts you know, a big lie to the idea that somehow or other you know, Australia and the US was winning, winning the war and you punctured a huge hole in the propaganda that was being made. But we also had France in, 60, France in uh, May in 68, uh, the, you know, the possibilities for those people who were left-wing and revolutionary inclined, actually seeing the possibilities of actually, you know, a revolution in, you know, first, you know, in a first world country. And then in August, I think it was, we saw the invasion of Czechoslovakia by Russia something which also punctured a massive hole and uh, also created this focus for a whole lot of discussion about you know, the nature of socialism and the, particularly the Communist Party and the politics of the Communist Party in the anti-war movement, in the anti-Vietnam war movement. And some of the ways those things cropped up is that there were you know, things over the slogans. I mean, Hall mentioned the difference between you know, sort of smash imperialism and peace now, or, you know, stop, you know, stop the bombing, withdraw the troops. But those, those things were, you know, critical parts of the campaign, how to build and what kind of politics was necessary to actually build. In some respects, there was still a very strong argument coming from the Communist Party and elements of the Labor Party, at least, to have the broader, you know, to talk about stop the bombing, peace now is the way in which you could brought broad, the broader forces in, opposed to increasingly the left and more imperialist arguments for building it much more on the basis of explicit anti-imperialism and to, you know, withdraw, withdraw the troops now. And I was very interested to hear what Hall had to say about the position of the, the, uh, the Vietnam, the uh, moratorium committee, you know, here in that guard. But on the rallies and the demonstrations, uh, that's the way it would be posed. There'd be uh, one, two, three, four, we don't want your bloody war, five, six, seven, eight, stop the war, negotiate, versus, versus one side right, one side wrong, victory to the Viet Cong. Um, as a way in which those, you know, the, the things were actually, you know, kind of, <clears throat> you know, kind of posed. So, um, just sort of running out of time in that regard. Uh, so, uh, so, but, uh, so, and I think the other side of it was, uh, you know, talking about the way that things interact, is that by 69, you've got developments that are happening inside the working class itself. Um, so in 69, you get Clary O'Shea and the, you know, the, the tremendous fight against the penal powers and what it's a... The working class interacting with the you know prevailing social prevailing social forces, they they smash the penal powers. They actually free uh, Clary O'Shea, who's been jailed. Something which the student movement of the left has been struggling about what to do, how to free jailed uh, you know um, you know draft resistors or people who've been jailed for handing out leaflets and so on. And then in that very practical practical way. Uh, the working class is actually posed as, a, as, a very, as a, an active ingredient of the possibilities of you know, the kind of social transformation you know, that we're talking about. And so I don't think it's any accident in that regard you know, that, the, um, that the, the, the force which actually frees Clare in 1969 
also becomes, you know, the force, which is, uh, although, you know, there's a whole lot of discussion to go on about in terms of the arguments inside the thing, but the, the section of unions in Victoria actually, in, you know, in 1970, the, you know, the rebel, you know, the rebel unions in, in Victoria actually call for explicitly, you know, for the end of the war and for, you know, mutiny of, uh, of soldiers, uh, for, you know, active avoidance of the draft and for mutiny of soldiers who are, you know, who are in, uh, you know, in, who are in Vietnam. Um, so I think the other thing which I'm not going to have time to go into, but is also that, that transformation inside the Labor Party, which I think Paul's also, you know, given a very good, you know, intro, introduction to, because you see the effect in particular, I think, of the movement on the Labor, you know, on the Labor Party. So if you look at both for all, you know, things that Hall said about Cornwall, nonetheless we look at Cornwall and Whitlam, you know, in the 60s, their position was still, for all Cornwall's radicalism, was that the US still had some kind of, you know, role to play in some kind of negotiated, negotiated settlement, you know, in the, you know, in the, back in the, you know, sort of 60, you know, 66, 67, 68. Um, but by, 90, by 1970, actually, the federal executive of the Labor Party actually instructs the, um, instructs the parliamentary Labor Party uh, to lead a campaign you know, against, the, against the war. And I think that's where we see one of the most dramatic ways in which the movement has actually affected the Labor Party and the Labor movement and brought them you know, into, uh, into, the, into the war. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm running out of time in that regard. So I'm going to, what I want to finish with was just some of the, some of the, con you know, the consequences, I think. It is very, very clear you know, that the war and the anti-war movement did radicalise yeah, you know, a, gen a generation. It wasn't just the war, but it ramified into so many other aspects of capitalism and of you know global you know global capitalism and imperialism and the importance of actually having an under <clears throat> an understanding of that. Um, and in one of the ways it posed itself very dramatically in Queensland was that yeah, even in the uh, in the year the thirtieth of June, nineteen seventy one, was the third you know moratorium. Um, Hard on the heels of that, by July 1971, actually, was we saw the, the Springbok tour and the mass demonstrations against the, uh, against the uh, not just the apartheid state, but very implicitly was the, the anti-racist strike in, you know, in Queensland, at Queensland University, by the same people who had built the war movement were actually on, you know, on strike about racism and the arguments about you know, the, the struggles in Vietnam or in South Africa were very, part, very much part of the struggles. You know, at, um, yeah, at home. So I think that's what it, uh, that, and the legacy, again, which I don't think we've got time to go into, but already in that process, as we're getting to you know, the moratoriums, we're already to see, you know, the, the uh, women's liberation movement and the gay liberation movement, again, explicitly coming out of that beginning of radicalisation, of, you know, beginning to look at the politics of the society in which you're, um, it's not just the oppression of the Vietnamese, but the wider aspects of oppression and exploitation you know, that take a, take a place. So it left, I think, a whole, a whole legacy, a massive legacy, you know, for, you know, for the left. For the war movement, for the anti-war movement in particular, I think it meant that uh, opposition to US imperialism, opposition to ANZUS and the alliance between Australia and the US, opposition to US bases was something which is just, you know, completely, you know, completely, you know, understood. And uh, I'll just finish with saying, I think the importance when we're looking at the, you know, the growing um, you know, climate of the you know, war about you know, war against China, the, the Australian government, the Labor Party actually moving much more you know, dramatically into you know, the, being the party of, party of war on China, making you know, very obvious, obvious uh, moves to create a you know, military industrial complex 
you know, in, in Australia, those kind of politics are going to be necessary, you know, once again. And I think hopefully this time, uh, because so much of the left learned in that process and they got a little bit more clarity at the beginning, we could have emerged much sooner, much more strongly, more effective, you know, at the, uh, <clears throat> at the end. But the left uh, intervention, I think, in, this, in, the coming, in the coming period is going to be absolutely critical and we can draw on those lessons from Vietnam to make sure this fight around is as, you know, as strong as we saw in the, the, the days of the, Viet, the opposition to the Vietnam War.